Oh, hey, it's that tiny dog that the passenger next to you brought on the plane and you follow them on Instagram, but you don't know how to bring it up casually. Allie Ward, back with another episode of Ologies, but not just any episode. We are creaking the door open and we're stepping a foot into the chill of Spooktober. That's right, kiddos. Last year, we had wall-to-wall creepy Halloween-y episodes in October, like osteology about bones and spidrinology all about spiderwebs and cucurbitology all about pumpkins. And it was so creepy then. And then cut to us standing wide-eyed holding 2020's beer. So think of Spooktober this year as a respite from the inferno of chaos that is an election year pandemic. Let's chill out by talking about flesh-eating birds. But first, we think. Thank you to every single patron at patreon.com slash ologies. I love you. You make the show possible. Thank you to everyone for buying ologies shirts or a winter hat or a fall blanket or face masks, which we now have at ologiesmerch.com. Thanks to everyone who's rating the podcast and making sure you're subscribed and telling friends and family enemies. And of course, for those writing a review, I have been known to read every single one. I read them sometimes in a deep South Hampton Inn just to keep me going on tough nights, such as this one this week by JLU98, who says, beware, do you want to become an avid bird watcher, a taxidermist, an astronaut? If you said no to any of those things, you're wrong. And if you said yes, beware, you will want to pursue a college degree in everything after listening to this podcast. JLU98, thank you so much. It's true. Okay, condorology. It is Word, and Google confirmed it for me. Just ask the 2004 paper titled Migratory Connectivity in Bicknell's Thrush, Locating Missing Populations with Hydrogen Isotopes. So the word condor, by the way, just looked it up. It means bird of prey, and it comes from an Incan word, cunter. So now you know that. But um, there's no relation to the other word. So this condorologist, I'm a fan of his on Twitter, he got his bachelor's in biology and his PhD in ecology and is now an assistant professor in the Department of Geology and Geography at West Virginia University and has been a researcher on projects involving the decline of vultures in India and how the landscape affects the recovery of the famed, almost once extinct California condors. So let's dip our smooth skin-covered skulls into the festering slop of carry-on talk as we learn about vultures and gut-eating and ecology and wingspans and live cams and a comeback from the brink of peril and we summon up all kinds of respect for one of the gothest birds in the game with condorologist Dr. Jonathan C. Hall. scientist. Ah, I like never even thought I'd ever get to talk to one. I'm so excited. People are people are stoked. Awesome. And so you study geography, but also how geography impacts different species. Right. So I'm actually not a geographer by training. So my PhD is in ecology. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got a degree in evolution ecology and organismal biology. But my work is very spatial. And oftentimes, I think it's difficult for people to wrap their brains around what geography is. You know, you, you say geography and people think, oh, maps and 
capitals, but geography mm-hmm. is is so much more. And I recently heard a um, brilliant and famous geographer, Dr. Ruth Wilson Gilmore, explain geography as why things happen where they do. Oh, once again, geographers study why things happen where they do. That's that's beautiful. I've never heard that before. This is great because geography, not being an ology, is a hard one to sneak in. So you're helping me sneak in some geography <laughs> as well. <Nice. laughs> Covering nice. two bases. And, and, you know, tell me a little bit about like where you grew up. What kind of kid were you? Yes. Um, I was the nerdy black kid um, <laughs> forever and always since day one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I grew up in Columbia, Maryland, which I think at one point was voted the number one small city in the country. Mm. So I grew up very privileged economically. My folks both worked in D.C. and in Prince George's County. My dad's in public health, and my mother is a high school uh, guidance counselor, and before that she was a high school biology teacher. Mm. And I grew up as an only child, so I'm very well adjusted. My only child. Um, you know it was a very good environment because you know the neighborhood i was in i had everything that i needed right wasn't worried about where food was going to come from or you know whether or not there was issues in the home or anything like that and so i had a lot of time to just kind of like sit and think and wonder about things and my mother being a high school biology teacher for most of her career would always kind of her work would kind of spill over into the home. And so, you know, she'd bring home like, you know, extra specimens that she Mm. was, you know, working on for dissections. And my dad grew up fishing. And so he would take me fishing all the time. And so from a very early age, I was just really curious about the natural world, curious about the, the creatures that were there. And so one of my earliest memories growing up was sitting down every Sunday night and turning on PBS and watching nature and just being fascinated by all of the interesting animals that were Uh, out there. And so growing up, I wanted to always be associated with cool, cool critters. Mm -hmm. This next question is in regards to regurgitated fur and rodent bones. So starting off strong here. Charm school with dad ward. Owl barf. Did your mom ever bring home any extra owl pellets? Yes. Jackpot. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) They're so amazing. (laughs) Yeah. My mother was uh, running a what was it like a summer, like a summer science camp or helping out with the summer science camp. And I got to go and it was really boring because for a while, because she was lecturing and I was like, I don't know, eight. And then mm-hmm. when the owl pellets came out, I was like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. I swear. It's like a kinder surprise egg. It's just like something that's like, who knows what it's going to be exactly. until you put it together. <laughs> and were you ever a bird nerd? No, and it's funny because I, I don't I don't yet consider myself a bird nerd. <laughs> and there's a, a graduate student in my lab, Darren Gross, who actually works for the Ventana Wildlife Society. I actually have two graduate students who worked in my lab who work for the Ventana Wildlife Society. And Darren is a bird nerd, and I tease him all the time about being a bird nerd um, <laughs> and identifying things. And I've always liked the the predatory animals. Raptors are, have always been something that's really interesting to me. Well, I think when it comes to condors too, not hard to identify. Nope. <laughs> they nope. are giant and numbered. <laughs> that would be a condor. Yes. <laughs> and this is so exciting. So 
you know, especially being in California, I don't know if I've ever seen a condor in the wild, but I have friends who have, and they say it's like, like time stops and yes. this huge wingspan just whoosh. Yes. Okay, quick aside. How giant are these wingspans? We're going to find out in a minute, but it's about 1.75 alley warts. 20 pounds of inky mystery bird pummeling the air above you to take flight. But yeah, I, so I've never seen one in the wild, but mm. when, what was the first time you ever saw a California condor? And are they even called that? Yes, okay. they are. Most people just call them condors. If you're in South America, then there's a different condor there. It's bigger mm-hmm. than the one we have here in, in North America. That's a good question. When was the first time I saw a condor? I'm trying to think. It was at Bitter Creek, one of the wildlife refuges a bit of ways north of LA. We were driving up to the flight pen that the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service runs as part of their condor management program. And I think the first condor I saw was one of the older birds that had been that was sitting on top of the flight pen. What you described is like time stopping. I was just like, whoa. (laughs) 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 And as we pulled up, as we pulled up, I think it took off. And then that was another just like, what uh, moment, Um, you know, when it it spread its wings and kind of took off. And so I think it took me a little bit of time to get adjusted because, you know, I had been reading about them. And obviously when I was, when I was younger reading about them, I had that, you know, National Geographic kids, and had a article on what the, the captive breeding program was all about and a little puppet feeding the, the, the baby condors. And so, you know, it was like my, my childhood catching up with me in real life, which was mm-hmm. really amazing. So what, what exactly is a condor? What kind of separates them from maybe turkey vultures that we see? How can I put this? Why are they so cool? <laughs> Biologically speaking. <laughs> yeah. Condors are, are sort of this class of like very large obligate scavengers, birds that primarily are only feed on uh, carrion, mm-hmm. uh, dead things. And there actually used to be more species of condors or birds that we cl- that would be classified as condors in this part of the world. When you're talking about a condor, you're talking about a bird that only feeds on uh, dead animals and essentially like a big-ass bird, much, much larger than turkey vultures or uh, other raptors. The California condor's wingspan can be up to nine, nine and a half feet Wide. That's crazy. (laughs) Nine and a half feet. What? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's kind of the maximum. I mean, like seven, eight, seven, eight, nine is about, you know, where they're at. But yeah, there's some some big ones. And the Andean condors, 10 feet uh, wingspan. Yeah, which is just bonkers. But, you know, there were species. There were, there were some species of, of condors that are now extinct that were even larger than that, right? Um, oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, quick establishing scene here. So condors are super social birdies, and they're considered new world vultures whose bodies are mostly black with large white triangles on the undersides of their wings. And they have this ruddy, orangish, bald head that's ensconced in a spiky black feather boa that Schitt's Creek's Moira Rose might envy. Now, I'm flattered beyond all reason. Anyway, condors. They're huge, kind of like a baby dragon, or if Melissifent low-key ate rotting flesh, and they are bigger than turkey vultures. Turkey vultures only have about six-foot wingspans, but condors are smaller than the giant wandering albatross, who can have up to 12-foot wingspans. Now, what about 
giant birds of the past. Well, about a decade ago, scientists discovered fossil remains of an extinct seabird with a 17-foot wingspan, which is about as long as the average minivan. Now, that will become more important later on, but for now. Why so? Why do you think they're so big? Is there something also geographically about the the hills of California and the updrafts and the coast? Like, why are they so huge? Yeah. So you know, I mean, the condors evolved in spaces where there were very very large mammals to feed on, right? And so, in thinking about post Pleistocene North America in this part of the world, there were just you know just a lot of big mammals, you know, sloth bears and marsupial lions and all these giant mammals that are no longer around. And so you know you have these giant mammals that are living and dying on the landscape. And so the the niche of of cleaning up those those carcasses gets filled by birds that you know can eat a lot, can grow really big, and the landscape allows them to kind of cover a lot of distance. And so if you're a larger bird, you can cover a longer distance. Also, if you're a larger bird on the ground, you can kind of fight off smaller scavenging birds. So there's Mm. like a pecking order of those sorts of things. Please leave. The environment that these birds evolved in was really conducive to them being really big. It it gave them an advantage over over turkey vultures and and other scavenging birds. Are there big enough animals still to support them? Yes. And a lot of that support comes from what sort of the the settler ecologies have kind of introduced into this landscape through cattle farming, right? And so cows or cattle are really big animals. And so condors feed a lot on, on cattle, but there's still, you know, animals like elk and mule deer in that part of the part part of the country and then the birds that are on the coast you know feed on marine mammals right and so oh yeah god i never even thought about a condor eating a whale carcass yes yes oh my gosh oh my gosh oh my gosh i can't oh the smells i mean okay wait hold on one second no she went Thank God we edit because I just had to have a conversation about whether or not my tiny poodle pooped. So. I think we should keep that in. I mean, I think that's, I I think that's relevant God. to the conversation. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, parenting during COVID. Am I right? JK, I have it so easy. I do not know how parents are doing it. I don't even have to teach her to read. She keeps pushing the door open with her snoot. Nice. But, um, Okay, so condors feeding on marine mammals. Like, yeah. Oh, and seals, I guess, too? Yep. Yep. Seals are a big part of the the diet of coastal condors that that occupy the coastal area. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. I have seen videos. Okay. I had watched a video put out by West Virginia University documenting Dr. Hall's travel to California for his field research in Maricopa, California at the Bitter Creek National Wildlife Refuge. And it's set among these golden hills with oak trees and populated by giant freaking birds. I had questions. I've seen videos with you. I have seen videos of um, the refuge that you do some research at. Sure. Their beaks. What are we even talking about with these beaks? A whole lot of pain. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> have, they have they ever nipped you? Uh, I have not been nipped in a way that was ornery. I've been nipped in, uh, in a playful way by a captive condor named Dolly who lives at the Los Angeles Zoo. And I think as a chick, she fell out of the nest and like really messed up her wing. It was broken beyond 
the repair that she would be able to fly. She's a kind of an instructional condor and very tame, has a good relationship with uh, one of the keepers at the Los Angeles Zoo, Mike Wallace. I just wanted to make mm-hmm. sure that recognizing the folks who work with condors on a daily basis mm-hmm. and a weekly basis, because I've learned so much from them and like they are such badasses. I mean, these are the folks who are repelling down sheer cliff faces into a condor nest to like check on the chick and having the parents land on their head and like bite their chest and all this stuff. So yeah, big shout out to Mike Wallace, Joseph Brandt, Molly, Steve Kirkland, Joseph Burnett, Darren Gross, Evan McGreeth. Oh my goodness. I know I'm leaving people out. Dr. Hall has so much gratitude for his colleagues. And so feel free during this episode to take a large glug of whatever is a nearby beverage or do a tiny imperceptible butt dance each time. He's so kind and that should be celebrated. I love it. It's like an Oscar speech. Yeah. Like all the people out there exactly. <laughs> making the work possible. Exactly. Like they're all really interesting, awesome, caring, loving, wonderful, brilliant people. And uh, they are what makes my work possible. They are what makes these birds so interesting. Like there's the one setting up condor cams, all this stuff. So got to make sure that I thank them because they're just awesome humans. <laughs> can you can you look at condor cams? Is that just for researchers? Is that just for condorologists oh, oh. or can the general populace? The general look? populace can, can, can uh, look up condor cams. I'll, uh, yeah, I will definitely send you a link. That you can, and that I did. And when I opened the window on the Ventana Wildlife Society's page at ventanaws.org to see a pair of giant, bald-headed, hunched birds bearing these red numbered wing tags, tending to one fuzzy, tiny little gray chick, I made like a squawk of joy. I freaked out, and then I just started texting the link to people. Every year, you know, condors are making babies in the wild. And uh, these nests have, some of these nests have cameras set up in them. So you can watch a condor kind of develop over time. It's really cute. (laughs) And how many now are in existence? Condors. Condors are on the verge of extinction. And how threatened did they get? They're still critically endangered. They're uh, about 510, 520 condors in existence which is a big improvement from the, you know, less than 30 that were around um, in the mid 80s. Yeah. So it's a a big uh, conservation success story. And so just over half of those just over 500 birds are living outside of of human captivity, right? So they're out there in the world. And there's a couple of different population centers for the birds. And so there's, there's two populations in Central California, the Big Sur population, which is on the coast, and then a little bit more inland is the Pinnacles National uh, Forest population. And then there's the Southern California population, which is the one that I've been working with. There are about 100 birds. And then there's another uh, 100 or so, I think, out in the Grand Canyon, sort of Arizona, Utah area. And then there is a, a population of about 40 in Baja, Mexico. Oh, yeah! I, I didn't even realize that we had them in Southern California. Oh, yeah. I think one of the awesome things about being a scientist, um, being a researcher, is getting to travel mm-hmm. and meeting new people and, more importantly, um, eating all, all the foods of the, of the area. So every time <laughs> I come out to LA, I'm just like, okay, where are we going? On the topic of research, let's back up a little bit and get some of Jonathan's history, which I derailed earlier. Uh, by asking about the owl vomit. 
let's see. Uh, I started out from PBS at home to wanting to be a veterinarian. I went to Morehouse College. Some say it's the best historically black college in the in the in the world. I tend to agree, but you know, <laughs> you might have others who might disagree. They're wrong, but that's cool. So shout out, <laughs> shout out to Morehouse. Um, and so I went to Morehouse as a biology major, and um, by that time I was not satisfied with wanting to be a veterinarian. I wanted to work with animals that were um, less conventional than dogs and cats, and then also not realizing that veterinarians work with all sorts of, you know, unconventional pets and things like that. And so I had a lot of learning to do about what animals a veterinarian worked with. But at the time I was like, oh yeah, I don't want to work with just dogs and cats. And so I wanted to become a snake venom biologist. Oh. <laughs> and so I had heard about this snake venom curator who over the course of several decades injected himself with a diluted cocktail of snake venom. Oh my God. To build up an immunity. I think he's talking about Bill Host, a Florida venom milker who headed up Miami's Serpentarium Laboratories. Miami Serpentarium, founded in 1948. And nearly died 20 times from venomous bites. Yet, he lived to the ripe age of 100, probably without much of a health insurance or life insurance policy. And I was like, oh, that's the coolest thing. And so this man, you know, after a period of time of taking a cocktail of snake venom was immune to snake venom. And, and so he'd been bitten by all of the venomous snakes that he kept and not going to the hospital and just kind of like wrote it out. And I was like, oh, I, I want to do that because that's a superpower. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I thought that, okay, I'll get an MD PhD, right? Mm -hmm. And run a snake venom research lab and have all of these venomous snakes and be a superhero, but also be a source of antivenin for, particularly for communities of black and brown people who are disproportionately subject to death by venomous snakes, right? Mm. Oftentimes, you know, people in rural communities in the global south, they're, they're alongside, you know, things like Russell's vipers and Bushmasters and cobras and all sorts of, you know, mambas and things that will kill you dead. And they just don't have access if they, if they are bitten by one of these animals to the, to antivenin because it's really expensive to make and, yeah. and produce. And so, I, you know, I wanted to do that, but <clears throat> I kept being drawn to the idea of being out in the field. And, you know, I'd spent some time working in a lab during a summer research program, and that really wasn't my cup of tea, and so I wanted to be out in the field. So Jonathan had spent some time working with parasitoid ants and performed termite necropsies and worked in fisheries and began to really enjoy research on ecology. Settler ecology, he says, is much different than indigenous ecologies, which are not destructive to plants and wildlife populations like settler ecology is. And he went on also to study grasshopper agriculture in Oaxaca and then had an opportunity through an advisor to look at ultras in India, who are actually an example of of convergent evolution. So they're not closely related to vultures that we might see in the Americas, but they evolved to have similar traits for eating corpses. And Jonathan has gotten to spend time in India studying the effects of La Nina weather on Indian vultures, as well as the positive effects that local Bishnoi people have had on forest conservation. And in the 1730s, he told me 363 Bushnoi people sacrificed their lives in a massacre to save a species of tree. So the next time you're like, 
Should I bring a canvas tote to the grocery store? Should I recycle this box? Just, yes, do it for the trees. Anyway, he ended up in the thick of condorology. Shout out to Anil Changani, who is another mentor colleague who worked with me on my dissertation. A dear, 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 dear friend. Miss him tremendously. Last time I was in India was in 2013. And just want to shout him out because... Again, you know, like without him, I wouldn't be where I am today. And did you find that you kind of your career in in ecology has kind of been like a relay race between these different mentors and different labs you've gotten to work with? Have, have they each kind of influenced your path? Definitely. Definitely. The work that scientists do is is never really just about one species. Right. It's how it impacts the environment as a whole. Yes. For sure. Especially with condors who are so known to be so critically endangered and to be this kind of comeback story of this right. like champion. I imagine that there must be so many people who are excited to meet someone who's on Team Condor, like, <laughs> oh, thanks for helping the condors, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so not only is it thrilling to meet a condorologist, but it's also a joy to kind of meet the birds themselves. So should you ever spot one, take note if you can of the color and the number on their wing tags. And you can go to condorspotter.com and you click on the color of the tag and then the number and you get a link to a bio about that specific bird. And this gossip is juicy. Okay, for example, one bird named Redwood Queen, used to be called Slope Slug because she was such a homebody and she just didn't stray far from the place she was released. Slope Slug, though? It's rude. And scientists misgendered her for years thinking she was a boy until she did a mating dance and they were like, oh, sorry. Also rude. Now, I'm going to read the rest of her official bio verbatim because it's just too good. So, quote, as far as condor status goes, Redwood Queen was at the bottom of the dominance hierarchy when she was first released. She was mercilessly harassed by the rest of the flock and forced to wait until everyone else had fed before approaching a carcass. Many years later, though, she paired with number 167, the most dominant male in the Big Sur flock at the time. Since then, she has reveled in her increased status as Redwood Queen. She laid her first egg with number 167 in the cavity of a redwood tree, the first ever documented case for a California condor. Dang, this is more enthralling than anything in Game of Thrones or Us Weekly. You know, okay, I have a stupid question about condors as well. Yes. Um, you know the tags that they have on their wings? This is so stupid, but how exactly are those fastened? They're fastened with a piercing. In, mm -hmm. in the wing, and it's um, sort of the equivalent of getting your ear pierced. Oh, okay. Yeah, so what folks like like Joseph and Molly and Joseph and folks have to be careful of when they're when they're sort of feeling around for the wing of the condor is to not you know puncture like a vessel or a nerve that's running through the wing, and they're you know they get really good at kind of feeling around, and then they kind of punch a hole through, and um, yeah, that's how they attach the uh, the wing tag, and there's like a little screw. On one end, one end of it, and one of the things that happens when um, the birds are captured and kind of we're monitoring their condition is to sometimes, depending on how long a tag has been in there, they check the size of the hole uh, because it widens over time. Oh, and so maybe they'll change it because if it gets too big, then the you know the 
the tag flops around in the wind and that causes more mm-hmm. damage and winds the hole even more. So, yeah. I always wondered about that. <laughs> okay. So, obviously, with carrion feeders, they have kind of that bald head so that they just don't get glush. We'll just use something onomatopoetic on their face, right? Right. So what other adaptations do they have for eating dead flesh? Yeah. So there's some really interesting uh, work that had been uh, done relatively recently and kind of looking at like uh, carrion eaters microbiome. Um, Wow. Yeah. And it's like some of the like most intense microbiome environment. And so one, one thing it's like, you know, their stomach acid is, you know, a next, next level acidic um, <laughs> because, you know, they're eating all sorts of noxious stuff, but animals microbiomes kind of extend, you know, from their gut to their skin. And so their skin is really resistant to a lot of kind of nasty microbes. They're just kind of like biologically armored against a lot of the noxious stuff that they're encountering. That makes a lot of sense that they would need some sort of like first line of defense against just the nastiest amount of worms and maggots and (laughs) funguses and... Yes. uh, What about their feet? What are their feet like? Uh, So their feet, you know, I get this, I get a question a lot, you know, um, especially when people see pictures of condors. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like, oh my goodness, those feet are intense. And they are. I mean, they, they, I mean, they look intimidating. They, I mean, they look like a dinosaur's foot, right? Long bones, uh, long, long digits, um, and they end in claws. But their feet are not really designed the same way that like a predatory raptor's feet are, which are essentially like killing fingers, right? Like those oh, things. Yeah. And the crushing power that, and gripping power that, let's say, a golden eagle has is very, very scary. But, you know, a condor foot is very mild in comparison. And really what they need them for is balance, right? Mm-hmm. And standing and things like that. They don't really need to like grip their prey because their prey is dead. It's not moving. And so they just need to be able to stand. And so the claws on their feet are not all that uh, sharp um, because they don't need to be. And their feet don't really kind of grip the same way that like an eagle's foot would, which I'm very thankful for because I've been scratched by, you know, condor feet they kind of like <gasps> kick around a little bit. And it's, you know, it's not anything serious. It doesn't break the skin. But uh, it is intimidating the first but, time you get scratched by a condor foot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because the, um, the just think of how gross that wound would be. Like, is there enough Neosporin to kill whatever is in, a, <laughs> like, a, a vulture's toenail? <laughs> oh. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? No, it's it's, it's not what you want. I actually had a, a I actually have a colleague. Shout out to Todd Katzner and the Katzner Lab, who is the person who actually got me connected with Condor. So he and I had done research at different times in um, the same part of India, in Rajasthan, India, on vultures and their ecology in in that part of the world. So Todd Katzner and his partner Aaron sort of ban birds and do all sorts of research and and work with raptors. They were rehabilitating a uh, turkey vulture. And Todd took a bite from a turkey vulture. And it was one of the most disgusting things (laughs) I've ever seen in my life. What did it look like? What did it look like? (laughs) It's like, oh, how? It's like curry mayonnaise. It's just kind of oozing out of (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> so you 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 may, you definitely want to make sure that whenever when whenever you take a bite from if you ever take a bite from a carrion eating organism, you wash that immediately. I think oh. I think Todd had to like get antibiotics because it's just. Oh, I'm sure. Nasty oh, stuff. like a hand transplant. Like, what? <laughs> just, you know, like, sew my head on a different body yep. out, you know? Yep, just cut it off. Just cut it off. I'm done. <laughs> oh, God. What other kind of bites or, or scratches have you heard about? I did hear, and I, you know, this is just hearsay. Maybe this is something that, like, you know, people told me when I first got there, like a, a condor myth of somebody who had been partially degloved oh, no. by a condor. And so we don't normally wear gloves when we're holding condors. Um, Mm -hmm. And people often see photos and like, are you insane? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Same question. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, is that, you know, a glove that that would be thick enough to protect you from a condor bite doesn't give you the, the sort of dexterity and the ability to kind of feel the condor and control the condor as as well as you could with your bare hand. Because when you're muzzling the bird, you kind of have to make a circle with your thumb and either ring finger or middle finger to kind of keep the beak closed. But depending on the size of your hand, you could be kind of pressing in on the condor's eye, Mm. right? And so you need to kind of like hold the bird delicately but firmly and not press on their eyes or not press on their nares or their nostrils. Um, And so all of that like sensitive equipment on the bird is, is... very close to its main ripping instrument. And so putting a glove on would really kind of like hinder your ability to keep the bird safe, even though you'd be much safer. So partially degloved without gloves means that your skin comes partially. (laughs) So I have not verified this story. um, And I kind of don't want to, because it's really good when you tell graduate students and undergraduate students who, who come out with you to like really be careful. (laughs) <laughs> Degloved. Degloved. like that's all you need to know oh gosh what kind of eyes actually do they have do they need good eyesight to see a, a big dead whale they they do it's really awesome to like to look at the different life strategies that birds have and specializations that like carrion eating birds have and so when you look at a picture of a turkey vulture they have these huge nares, these huge, huge nasal openings. And when you compare that to a condor or a black vulture, whose nares and nasal openings are much smaller, it turns out that, that turkey vultures primarily use olfaction to locate carrion. And they, I mean, they have good eyesight, but their kind of specialty is sniffing out the dead thing. Whereas mm-hmm. black vultures and turkey vultures, they do have very good senses of smells, but their eyesight are, is usually what they're using to primarily locate things, right? And oh. so different specializations. And so their eyes are kind of scary because they're red <laughs> mm-hmm. and they're piercing. They look at you with intent. They look at you with intelligence and they're very, very smart birds. They're intimidating, but they're, they're really beautiful, beautiful eyes. Oh. How are the condors doing? Let's check in. Are they okay? Are they staying hydrated? Are they doom scrolling? Am I projecting? Where things at are with condors now, I mean, you know, the, the recovery in the captive beating program has been an incredible success. Yes. And, you know, it's kind of like the, the next stage of condor conservation. Can these magnificent birds exist in an anthropogenic landscape? Mm. Right? A landscape whose ecologies, you know, as I was mentioned before, have been completely transformed, right? The modes of being and the ways that condors have evolved to be on the landscape are are not as congruous to highways and plastic and 
chemicals and, you know, far, far fewer species than they're used to seeing and cities and all of these things. And so sort of the next stage and what my work is focused on now is trying to understand the ways in which condos are moving across the landscape. Mm. And particularly for, for the work that we're doing in my lab is, is what condors are doing, where they're doing it on the ground, you know, where they're feeding. Because, you know, when the, the primary threat to California condors' persistence on the landscape is lead poisoning. Oh, wow. Yep. I didn't know that. Yeah. So <laughs> this is where things <laughs> might get a little interesting in terms of folks who might have an opinion about this. And they're picking up lead from spent ammunition. So we're talking about guns yeah. um, in America, which is always a really, you know, welcoming yeah. conversation. Absolutely. <laughs> and I say this as somebody who is learning to hunt um, and everything, but I use non-lead ammunition. Mm -hmm. California recently enacted legislation where now you, you cannot purchase lead ammunition for hunting in the state. Oh. Part of the reason why is because of the research that was done on condors and found that these birds when they're feeding on a gut pile of an animal that's been shot by a hunter, you know, condors eat very fast wow. when they're on the ground. They're big birds. It's difficult for them to take off. And they're awkward on the ground, much more awkward on the ground than they are in the air. So they have to gobble down their food really quickly before some other predator might come, come around and make a meal out of them or just kill them, you know, to get them off the, the carcass. So they eat really quickly. And so they're, you know, just gulping down hunks of meat. And in, mm -hmm. in the meat that's left are lead fragments. And so... Mm. You know, these birds, they have a pretty high le uh, a blood lead concentration in terms of their load sort of on the landscape, right? And so a lot of mortality of condors has been from lead poisoning. Oh, I didn't know that. So Jonathan says that one of the reasons lead is used as ammunition is because it's cheap, it's heavy, and it fragments on impact. And it leaves a bit of a snowstorm, he says, of lead in flesh, especially in the guts of an animal, which are usually discarded in the field by hunters. And I did a little more reading on this, and it takes only a few fragments the size of a couple grains of sand to potentially kill a condor, which, as a person who has absentmindedly eaten the stickers on more fruits than I care to admit, is pretty easy to do. Well, they come and start to gobble down an animal that's just been hunted before the hunter can get to it? No. Well, it depends on how long it takes the hunter to get to it and where the animal is. If you're out hunting and you shoot a mule deer or something like that, the condors usually won't get there. Like, you know, if you had to walk like two hours to get to your quarry, you wouldn't be getting there when the condors are already starting to feed. One of the interesting mm -hmm. things about a condor is that they're very cautious. So oftentimes they'll, they'll find a carcass and they'll just, if they can, sort of roost nearby and just watch. Sometimes oh. for hours, maybe even days, just to make sure that like nothing else is coming by because they don't want to become a snack. If you're a hunter, you're not in danger of losing any meat to, to a condor. Will a hunter shoot something and then kind of lose the animal if it runs? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Is, you can tell I have not been hunting, but like, do they run away and die? Like, I just no idea. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, shooting and making contact with an animal is definitely no guarantee that you're actually going to have meat in your freezer. You lose them or sometimes you might shoot one and it and it falls and it gets into a spot that you just can't you just can't get to. Oh, I never even thought about that. I mean, imagine just like going to get a burrito and then the burrito takes off or you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you just can't get to it. You're like, well, no. I just paid for this burrito, but it's running away. <laughs> yeah. Well, yep. well Condor's going to eat it. 
So there's a movement in ecologically conscious hunters and wildlife conservationists to use copper bullets instead, and they don't fragment like lead does, and they're more expensive. So as you can imagine, there is some resistance, shall we say, to this. But Jonathan himself, who's new to hunting, says he doesn't shoot with lead for ecological reasons. And apart from that issue, there are other environmental factors affecting our favorite dead flesh feeders. These birds that are feeding on marine mammals that hang around kind of these runoff areas of cities and all of this chemical downwash that's happening. And then you get kind of the amplification, biological amplification of chemicals sort of as you move through the food web. You know, you've got kind of a, a large population of smaller organisms and they get more and more concentrated as you move through the food web into these top predators, right? So. Mm-hmm. You know, you could have a, a low contaminant load for like an anchovy, but by the time, you know, a sea lion is eating another fish that's fed on the anchovy, that those toxins become concentrated. Right. And oh. so condors are picking up all sorts of nasty stuff from the marine animals that they eat that are living in these environments where human beings are kind of dumping chemicals into the into the watershed. So these are a few reasons why the condor population was so low, it was nearly extinct. But it's steadily rebuilding. So we're going to hear more about that in a second. But first, a quick break for some sponsors of the show who make it possible for us to toss some cash at a cause of Jonathan's choosing, which this week is blackinappalachia.org, which in their words, works to highlight the history of African Americans in the development of our region and its culture. Through research, local narratives, public engagement and exhibition, the project aims to raise the visibility and contributions of black communities of the Mountain South. So you can visit blackinappalachia.org to donate or to find out more. And you can also listen to their podcast, which appropriately is titled Black in Appalachia. And that donation was made possible this week by the following sponsors who you may now hear about. If you have gonads that are designed to fluctuate, you probably have some hormonal things that are bugging you. Y'all have listened to my field trip episodes. You know that my ovaries and I have needed to part ways over creative differences. And if you've dealt with jacked hormones, you've felt my pain. Maybe you would like a little bit of relief. And there's this thing called Hormone Harmony, and it's this formula. It's made with herbal ingredients that have been shown to reduce hormonal symptoms, whether you're dealing with perimenopause or menopause, sleep issues, tummy stuff, nothing like hormonal bloating. Love that. But Hormone Harmony, they have these science-backed herbal extracts. They're called adaptogens. They can help the body adapt to stressors, struggles like PMS and menopause. And people love Hormone Harmony. There's like over 17,000 reviews. A bottle is sold every 24 seconds. And it was really helpful for me to see other people who had similar issues who felt a lot better and had a little help from plants to deal with some uncomfy hormonal things. So for a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code ologies at checkout from my bod to yours. This podcast and my life is brought to you by Squarespace. Do you know that I didn't have a website for forever because I was putting it off because I was scared? And then I heard another podcast talk about Squarespace. I was like, I'm going to give it a shot. I had a website up that day. They have beautiful templates. They host. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Look at me. Even I did it. You can sell products. You can sell your time. They have this guided design system. It's called Squarespace Blueprint. You can select from a layout. There are styling options. You can get your 
your website discovered with these integrated, optimized SEO tools so people find you when they Google. They also have easy-to-use payment tools, so checkout, very easy for customers, which is what you want. There's also Squarespace AI, which can help you explain what your site is about. You can choose your tone. Whether you're a scientist who wants to share your work with the world, whether you are starting up a business selling tiny paintings of tiny books, or a choreographer selling dance classes, head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash ologies to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. I recommend it to all my friends, even when I'm not recording an ad. Okay. Allergies with Allie Ward is sponsored by Claritin. So luckily for those that live with the symptoms of allergies, you can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This is designed for serious allergy sufferers and Claritin D has two powerful ingredients and just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. It's this double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available. Relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion, and pressure with ease. Just boom, down the hatch. You can get non-drowsy relief of allergy symptoms. And with Claritin D, you can still make the most of your day without compromise or looking like you've been crying. Are you ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Your pod mother, Jarrett, terrible allergies and was recently shooting an indie movie that was filming in a house that had seven cats. Guess who's allergic to cats? Him. So yeah, we always have Claritin in like each of our cars. Essentially, Claritin D is the third in our relationship. It's fast and powerful relief. It's just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Do you find yourself searching for true crime podcasts that are different from what you're always recommended? Do you want to make a real difference in the cases that you're following? Well, you're a crime junkie. And I'm Ashley Flowers the creator and host of the number one true crime podcast, Crime Junkie. There are hundreds of episodes already available, and each Monday we dive into the details of cases spanning from some of the most infamous to those that you have never heard covered before. Listen to Crime Junkie podcast now, wherever you're listening. Okay, your condor queries. Can I ask you lightning round? Yeah. Patreon questions? Yeah. Oh, people are excited. Okay, <laughs> I thought this was a great question. Ethan Batone. I think it's Italian. I'm not sure. First time question asker says, I've heard that vultures will projectile vomit as a form of defense. Do condors do this as well? No. Um, oh. I mean, they they will, but there are other birds like turkey vultures mm-hmm. who are big fans of that defense strategy oh yeah it's <laughs> awful um but the worst the worst birds the people who know me especially my family know that i have like a vendetta against cormorants oh no <laughs> so specific yes so when i was a graduate student i worked at a outdoor classroom shout out to michael hogarth the muscle man he he works with uh, freshwater mussels Maybe I've lived in Southern California too long, but when he said the muscle man, I definitely pictured a guy in a tank top drinking a whey protein shake. Anyway, bye valve guy. One of his first field trips in the field zoology course is out on Ohio State's outdoor uh, classroom stone, stone lab on Lake mm-hmm. Erie. 
is to go to Green Island, which is an island in sort of western part of Lake Erie, close to the Bass Islands, that's uninhabited by humans and has been so for a couple of years. And it is a heron and cormorant rookery. Oh, okay. So you're hell world. Yes. Yes. (laughs) The night circle of hell is being stranded on that island. Um, Because the birds are nesting in the trees, we go to that island like the second field trip that's there. The first field trip is to a, a pond where there are leeches. The second field trip are (laughs) Barf Island. And so there's like biting flies and you have to row to the island. And as the TA, I had to like shuttle people back and forth. So I was on the island getting torn up by black flies. And then you get onto this island and they're just like, they're nests above you. Mm-hmm. And these birds are just vomiting fish on oh. you for oh. like three hours. Oh <laughs> no! And I've never been hit, but a couple of a couple of students have been hit by like just like rotting no. half digested fish. Oh god! And I hate it. Oh I, god! I hate it. I hate it. I so understand much. now. I understand. <laughs> yeah, condors. Condors are, are pretty. Are, are I mean, as long as you as long as you keep their head controlled, and you do that by pinning their their head against their body, right? Because a lot of their most of their power is in ripping, right? And so, mm-hmm. if you've already got their head kind of cocked back on their body, then they can't really do much more damage if you were to you know, get your finger in that area. And so once you have them controlled and you're kind of hugging them, they, they really kind of chill out. I did have a student who her, for her first condor was a, it was a juvenile who had just fledged and it peed on her the entire time she was holding it for like 40 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) It's just drinking a Mountain Dew as it's peeing. It's just rehydrating. It was like a steady trickle, you know? (laughs) Oh my god. Yeah. So so condors Good for are, them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> condors condors are pretty chill when it comes to like, you know, vultures and everything. So Oh yeah. my god. Um <laughs> another great question. Jeffrey Bradshaw wants to know who eats condors when they die? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know of of like macrofauna that regularly feast on condors, aside from canids or maybe bears that might like be able to snag one. But since you know the birds have been kind of really closely monitored, they don't really run into trouble. They don't really run into predation mm-hmm. that that much. Like who would scavenge a condor? Yeah, I don't know of any examples of like other condors. Like oh, Jerry died. Let's uh, <laughs> let's go eat him. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's like the like the same thing is just like crying into ice cream as you're eating it. You know, just like, oh man, he was a great guy. I can't stop. I mean, he was a great guy, man. <laughs> he was so oh, good. Oh, Gary. Oh, we love you. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think the only thing that would want to eat a condor, given the fact that it's you know its microbiome is like holding at bay a lot of nasty stuff, and once it dies, that microbiome is kind of mm. like out of commission. I think that other scavengers that would be able to handle. <laughs> digesting a dead condor are probably it's probably not worth the effort to like try to pick through all the feathers and everything like that so i think the microbes are the ones that end up doing most of the the microbes mm. and the and the uh, macro invertebrates end up doing most of the work ah so it's little little ones yes. that just break free oh uh grace lauren two great questions grace says hi dr hall i understand that 
<laughs> California condors used to have a much wider range prior to their population dwindling down. Um, do we think they'll ever reach a point where they can return to their past range? And also, what's with the tiny patch of fuzz fuzz on their noggin? <laughs> um, yeah, so so the tiny patch of fuzz fuzz on their noggin. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I'll answer that question first. I imagine Grace is talking about the little fuzz that kind of shows up in their, their nostrils, their nares. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes you'll see that with like younger birds as their kind of down is, is they're shedding their down and they're getting their adult, adult feathers and they just kind of gets caught in that, in that area. P.S. These big ass birds can live maybe up to 60, 70 years, maybe more. But another reason for the condor's vulnerability is that they raise really small clutches of one to two eggs. And those babies can take six to seven years to reach sexual maturity. And during that prolonged, awkward pubescence, their heads change from a mottled dark gray color to a sherbet orange or reddish color, depending on if they're horny. And that's all you need to know about their heads. There's no more information. Sometimes I've been asked, so I'm sorry, I'm going to ask my own question and answer. Yeah. <laughs> but what does a condor head feel like? Uh-huh. Feels like a ball sack. Feels like a spider. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's exactly what it feels like. And, you know, for, for listeners who have felt a scrotum, you know exactly what that feels like and you can immediately call that up. Um, for those of you who have not felt a scrotum, then, you know, maybe... Um, Pet a condor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you could you could feel a con- if you feel, if you touch a condor head, that's what a scrotum feels like. <laughs> if you touch a scrotum, that's what a condor head feels like. Oh my god, now we know. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and answer, I never knew to ask the question. So, what is with the tiny patch of fuzz fuzz? Maybe that's <laughs> you know they didn't do quite... any condor scaping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the. Uh... Oh my god. Uh... <laughs> Wrinkly. Gross. It's important for the listeners to know. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like very delicate, very stretchy, mm-hmm. um, very warm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and kind of smelly. So, yeah, <laughs> a lot of parallels. Checks all the boxes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. And then what about the range? What are we yeah. thinking? <laughs> so I think this is, this is a really good question, and it kind of gets to the crux of my work and trying to understand is it even possible for condors to you know extend their range into northern california um up the west coast into alaska down into mexico and even you know populations in texas even in the eastern part of the united states right i think the short answer is i think that we're a long ways off from that and that has to do has everything to do with the way that settler ecologies have to be reworked Mm -hmm. or dismantled um, for those birds to return because you know it's just human beings living in this particular way have such a humongous footprint yeah um and they take up a lot of space and they do a lot of damage and um that has to change i think in order for condors to return to their normal range and i think that goes for a lot of you know charismatic macrofauna that used to be ubiquitous in the landscape human beings particularly ones that are practicing this particular type of, of ecology, need to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Okay, and side note, because Dr. Hall is amazing, he went back to Patreon and answered so many questions, including describing the really strong acid in the condor's gastric system as, quote, like 
pissed off Wonder Woman fighting Nazis strong. Their bacteria gang is just stronger. Quote, and this microbiome of the condors can break down even small amounts of lead so well that researchers estimate that up to 60% of the condor fatalities in the wild can be attributed to lead poisoning. But things that contributed to their extinction in the wild around 1987, this was before the captive breeding programs, were things like the use of DDT, which has been known to cause really fragile shells that break in the nesting process. And these effects of DDT were still happening decades after it was banned in 1972 because it was stored in the blubber of sea mammals that the condors ate years later. And another risk? not to bum you out, is unlike a turkey vulture, a condor's sense of smell isn't so great, and sometimes they mistake trash for rotting flesh, which would not be trash to them. So helping out with a beach cleanup could be saving these fuzzy little flesh rippers. Oh, and speaking of diet, in Kate Coldren's words, as California condors have a taste for carry-on, do they have a preference for how long their nourishment has been dead? And if it's been dead too long, will they turn their beak up at it? Ooh. That is a good question that I do not know the answer yeah. to. It would be really interesting to like <laughs> lay out like a you know relatively fresh carcass and then one that's you know a couple of weeks old. But I, I would imagine that like <laughs> animals, you know, carrying gets uh, maybe even a little too funky for a condor. Like, mm, <laughs> oh no. <Yeah. laughs> Uh, I wonder, yeah, I wonder if it just becomes, like, jerky, you know? If they're like, ooh, it's kind of dried up. No, thank you. Dr. Kaylee Swift, who is a corvid thanatologist who... Hi, Doc. Uh, yeah, she's amazing. She works with um, crow funerals. Um, her, oh, that episode was amazing. Yeah, so this is her. Uh, she says, I have so many questions, so I'm going to post all of them and let you pick. She says, do you consider gut piles left by hunters essential to the sustainment of condors, or would there be enough prey without them, do you think? That is another really good question that I don't think we have a uh, clear answer to. I think the supply of food that comes from human activity has to be sustained to a certain level. What humans make available through hunting versus what other, you know, predators and sort of like dying of natural causes is mm -hmm. made available to condors. That's a good question about like where they are feeding and what exactly they are feeding on. Yeah. I would be worried if hunting activity didn't make some of the larger ungulates available on the landscape. And that's because they're just, they're not a lot of predators, particularly in California, that are going to feed on like an elk. Mm or right. bighorn sheep, or, you know, a mule deer. So I think humans are, are an important part of, like, condor ecology. But, you know, how much food they're getting from, like, ranchers, that's a good question. Yeah. She has another another question. She said, are you familiar with or do you support Pleistocene rewilding? And do you think <sighs> that would significantly advance the conservation of condors? And she also says, oh. thanks for all you do to conserve these epic dinos. <laughs> well, thanks to you, Doc. Um, <laughs> boy, so how much time do you have? Because <laughs> this this issue of rewilding, I have a lot of thoughts okay. about this and Pleistocene rewilding and all this stuff. Just a heads up, if Pleistocene rewilding sounds like a 
new beauty routine you don't know about or a synth folk band you've never heard of, I gotcha. So the Pleistocene era started over 2 million years ago. It ended about 11,000 years ago. And rewilding means introducing species that flourished before essentially colonization. So for more on this, you can also see the Bisonology episode about buffaloes. Anyway, Jonathan has thoughts. Great ones. European settlers are almost entirely responsible for the sort of conservation crises that we are witnessing in what's now called North America and in large, large part of the world, right? You know, with European expansion and colonization, you, you get this massive transformation of human life that exists amongst indigenous people, mm-hmm. but you also get this massive transformation of, of these ecologies. And we, we never, we meaning researchers who are kind of in, involved in this conversation, almost never acknowledge or talk about the restoration of keystone cultures, mm. keystone human cultures, right? And so uh, there's a PhD student in my lab who is researching buffalo restoration. Shout out to Meg Davenport. She's studying, like, you know, you talk about buffalo restoration, but, you know, there are dozens of people, peoples, who are intimately tied ecologically and spiritually and, you know, all of these ways in which humans interact to a particular species. We talk about bringing the buffalo back, but it gets contentious because then you have to start talking about, well, why are you bringing the buffalo back and the buffalo back for whom? Mm-hmm. So when you talk about buffalo restoration, you have to talk about restoration of indigenous lands, restoration of indigenous people. And you have to talk about, you know, the, the really uncomfortable stuff that uh, settler ecologies are, are really good at avoiding talking about. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I think rewilding has to contend with those two issues, right? Who's responsible and are we talking about bringing back human cultures and who's the we and how is that being done? Uh, otherwise, you know, it's just another way of settlers controlling the landscape and tramping on indigenous sovereignty and not really taking an ecological approach to the situation, right? Because then you're talking about having to control more land, having to keep certain people out of the land to bring these species back. You're talking about needing authorities to kind of maintain boundaries. And and that's really not something that's really congruous with, you know, trying to restore these ecologies in which, you know, human created boundaries. Oh, that's such a good point. And it's interesting that a lot of times we don't think about how broad and and how wide the story of a condor is. It's it's not about just the birds. It's about the, you know, our entire system of the way that we take land, use land, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And some colleagues of, uh, of mine are working on publishing a paper and looking at the daily travel distance of condors. And other folks have done this research too, but we've got some really awesome technology, which essentially amounts to strapping a, a GPS, strapping a cell phone onto a bird, mm-hmm. onto a condor, <laughs> and being able to get their their location, their speed, their altitude in like real time. You know, like every second, like data points, like every wow. second or every 10 seconds or every hour, every half hour, every 15 minutes. And so looking at the daily travel distances of condors, I mean, these birds cover an incredible distance. We had, we, we tracked one bird that essentially traveled the equivalent length of the state of California, uh, north to south in three days. What? <laughs> it's faster than I can do it in a car. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's just stupendously fast. And so when you, when you talk about, you know, restoring these birds to the landscape, you're talking about a bird that has the capability of flying across the state border, right? Mm-hmm. 
or you know it gets really interesting and really complex and really uncomfortable when we when you know we start talking about condor restoration on indigenous land mm -hmm. and so the yurok and the kurok people have a reservation that are currently uh, based in northern california working with the u.s fish and wildlife service and the condor biologists to kind of help manage a, a northern california population and the nez Perce tribe um, in what's now idaho and that region are are kind of beginning that process of bringing condors back because these birds are really important culturally for them but it gets a really to a contentious point and it was interesting at one of the condor meetings i asked uh, a question sort of like in the coffee hour to um one of the the folks who was organizing it. and i just you know this question who owns condors mm. Right. And it was a it was a tough question, and I meant it to be sort of a tough question. I don't know the answer, right? Yeah, um, yeah. What happens when condors that are managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, or who are managed by the Peregrine Fund, or condors from Mexico start crossing the border, right? Mm. As they are being, you know, as we hope they, you know, expand their range. Well, then we have to have all these difficult conversations about who has jurisdiction, who's responsible, who's going to, you know, look after these birds if they get into trouble. Mm -hmm. You know, what kind of conditions you cross the border, you know, anywhere outside of California and you don't have lead ammunition legislation. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, condor that <laughs> flies from Los Angeles into, you know, Utah or Arizona or Nevada or wherever mm -hmm. gets into trouble, ingests some lead and then comes back and is sick. Like who, you know, who pays for that? Yeah. For the bird that needs treatment. So it's a, it's a lot. Yeah. It's an issue even bigger than their wingspans. <laughs> if you can imagine that. So, Dr. Swift, great questions. And if you would like to hear more about inky birds with great brains and Halloween vibes, definitely check out the Corvid Thanatology episode with Dr. Kaylee Swift, which is about crow funerals. Crows have funerals. And it aired around Halloween 2018. So definitely go back and listen if you haven't heard it. Oh, Oh, on the topic of their giant wings. I, I know a number of folks who have condor wing tattoos. Ah, oh, my and God. And they are really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a full back tattoo? I mean, you need some real estate for that. <laughs> yeah, you do. Um, and and it's, yeah, it's not, it's not to scale. Otherwise, you have to have like one wing from the bottom of your neck to like the back of your calf. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, shout out to Nick Heinen, geographer at the University of Georgia, and then shout out to Joseph Brandt, who's worked with condors in Southern California for uh, most of his career. They both have condor wing tattoos, and so they're kind of smaller on their arms, and mm -hmm. they're just like really awesome. Oh, I want to see a picture of it. Of course, I will be finding these Instagrams and reposting the pictures if I find them. I mean, come on. Um, what is something about condors or your work that sucks? What sucks? Oh, yeah. I've been thinking about this um, <laughs> before I listened to your show, and I was, what sucks? Well, I will. I will tell you this: the the scaredest I've ever been mm -hmm. researching condors, which had nothing directly to do with condors, but. A couple of years ago, and that was the day when it was really cold and rainy, and we were we were not prepared for the weather. But what had happened a couple of days before was a giant mountain lion oh. had wandered into the trap. Oh no! Oh no! 
Um, and so, you know, you bait the birds and you have a cow carcass that's there, usually like a, a stillborn calf. So Dr. Hall had taken a few students with him, Evan and Vince, and it was Vince's first time doing field work. And it was cold and rainy. And a day or two before, the condor bait had lured a mountain lion to the trap. Dr. Hall saw a photo and... <laughs> it was like the, like the most muscly mountain lion I'd ever seen in my life. Like, ugh, it was really bad. So this is before the flight pen had, had this big, what I call their Jurassic Park fence around <laughs> oh it to God. keep the predators out. So we show up a couple of days later and this mountain lion is like, we don't know. I mean, it's, it's no longer sort of directly in the vicinity, but mountain lion could be just like just over the next hill. I mean, ah! there's elk, there are, there's plenty to eat in that area. Um, mm -hmm. And so we're in the barn and the field house is about um, 300 yards away. And so Vincent didn't have, all he brought was short sleeves and short pants. No. It's 58 degrees, 56 <sighs> degrees and raining. No. <laughs> and so even in the barn, Vincent is like really cold. And he's like, Dr. Hall, I'm really cold. Can I go back to the field house and get like a jacket? Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes, <laughs> but nobody could go with him because we were all kind of like busy. And I, you know, I started hesitating and I'm like, he's, he's like shivering. Oh. And so it's like, oh no, Vince, like <laughs> he's going to get hypothermia, but I don't want anybody walking around here by themselves yeah. with a giant mountain lion. Oh my God. That was the longest 30 minutes <laughs> oh, no. of my life <laughs> oh, my <God. laughs> waiting for Vince to come back. And like, like he, he was, he was tired. And so like, I think he like went to the bathroom and maybe just sort of like hung out because this was his first time in the field. And maybe he's like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> he's like Googling other jobs. <laughs> <laughs> but like Vincent is, Vincent took half an hour to come back and I am, I'm like, Oh my God. You know, <laughs> I bring out this, you know, undergraduate, and he's a sophomore at the time, I bring out this undergraduate student and he gets eaten <laughs> by mountain lion and Vincent's black. Okay. And so, you know, like we're the only two black people out there. Mm hmm. And of course, I'm like, okay, this is like a horror movie. And of course, one of us is going to get eaten first. No. Right? Oh. You know, how would it look like, you know? <laughs> um, but he eventually makes his way back in one of the one of the field jackets. And I was just like really glad to see Vince. Oh. Shout out to Vincent if you're out there. Hopefully you haven't been eaten by a mountain lion. Seriously. Oh, my God. And hopefully yeah. he's, got, he's got a jacket and a lightning breaker if necessary. Oh. Uh, what about your favorite thing about your work? Uh, I would say my favorite thing about my work is working with students. Yeah. Is working with, with young folks and trying to do the same thing that the mentors that I mentioned, you know, the Tom Waits, the Dwayne Jacksons, the Neil Changanis, the Todd Katzners have done for me um, and just given us an opportunity to explore the world, explore our interests, build skills and really kind of gain confidence. It's the best part of my job. And particularly when I get to work with students of color, which is not often and something that I'm really need to do a lot of better job of, of connecting with other, particularly black folks sort of in this realm, which is why, you know, I've just, so impressed and so thankful and so in awe of people like, you know, Karina Newsom mm. and Dr. Esther, who's somebody you should, you should definitely talk to. Yes. She does incredible work in creating space and so many other people, right? Um, 
And one of the things I was thinking as I was listening to the Black and STEM episode was I was thinking, and I wanted to say to everybody who was on that, like, if you are looking for postdocs, <laughs> holla at your boy. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, you know, but also just, you know, I look forward to connecting with, with folks because, it, you know, it's obviously there's a lot of work to do in the realm of racial diversity within these fields. And working with students and uh, backgrounds that are not represented is just so enriching because we have a lot to contribute. And there's a, there's a lot about our experience as Black people and as other people of color that we bring to bear. And, you know, these fields are incredibly white. And, you know, there's nothing sort of inherently wrong with, you know, white people doing this work. But looking at the lack of racial diversity, you know, there's a lack of, of perspectives and ways of approaching problems and questions that we definitely need to have in order to kind of make things like rewilding not problematic and not re replicate, you know, the same sorts of marginalized environments that, that exist. So shout out to all of the people of color, Black folks, especially in these fields and doing what you do. You're an inspiration and a big reason or the reason why I continue to do what I do. Do you have any words to people who are Black in STEM, who mm. are just coming up that you wish you knew? Any advice to them? Ooh. Um, goodness. That's a whole, that's a whole other yeah. <laughs> episode. I think... Um, one of the things that has that I've, that I've struggled with sort of throughout my career is um, wondering whether or not I was crazy or wondering whether or not I was insane, right? For the interest that I had, for the ways that I approached questions, for the, the approaches that I was taking, the things I was interested in, and sort of like once I got into the fields, right? As I've progressed in my career, I've had to kind of create a space sort of a, a, an epistemology or approach to questions that is not really there. I think that I would say to folks, particularly black folks in this field is like the way that you are passionate about approaching problems and the way that you are thinking about ways to solve problems. Don't let anybody take that perspective away from you or try to dampen that perspective. And it can happen actively, but it could also just happen by the fact that there's a tremendous pressure within these fields to value knowledge in a particular way. And it's problematic because of its lack of diversity, diversity of perspectives. And so I would also say to white folks in this field and just sort of white folks in general, that it's really important that you know, those who are seeking to be accomplices, and I like accomplices, that term better than allies, mm. because allies can, can be kind of like cheerleading from the sidelines, but they're not actually in the thick of it, mm. right? So you can, you, can, you can advocate from the sidelines, but not actually risk anything. Right. And there's a certain safety in that. But I think what folks need is accomplices, people who are willing to put themselves at risk in an equal measure as they can being in their privileged identities that people who are marginalized. Do. And I would say that like a, being an accomplice or being an ally, really there's a tremendous learning that has to happen. Don't ignore and don't push aside the fact that there's just so much about the way in which race functions in our everyday lives that we have to learn. 
before we can be good actors in dismantling it. Mm. Being a good advocate, being a good accomplice really starts with that learning. Mm-hmm. And it's intense, and it, but it's necessary. Absolutely. So, yeah. Oh, that's all such, <laughs> such great advice. I think that so many people who don't maybe don't have mentors like you like that's that's a really amazing statement to you're almost acting as like a a mentor to a lot of people that you'll you'll never meet which is really great you know um eyes are starting to sweat Allie. uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's true like it's um you know just some more voices and and the more voices that people hear the more you can see yourself doing something and yeah, we're, we're definitely not going to dismantle a system that was built by white colonizers by just having people who are descended from white colonizers. It's not going to, you know, yeah. that's really eye opening and, and really wonderful. Yeah. No, no. And thank you for, for creating the space. I mean, like this is really important. I think that what you have done and what you are doing is just an incredible hub for people to kind of understand, understand these sorts of things. Jonathan also said that one thing he wished he would have learned earlier that would have saved a lot of energy would have been to not debate and engage with people who think racial injustice or privilege doesn't exist. It, it would be a lot easier to deal with if I got paid for the <laughs> labor of, <Yeah. laughs> of like racial justice that yeah. I'm doing. Like, yeah, it's and, you know, that's one thing for like, you know, administrators who are who are firm, firm in this idea of legitimacy it's time to get creative to compensate people of color for doing this work. Mm-hmm. And um, we're talking like, we're talking like straight cash, homie, like, <laughs> like for real, <laughs> that would go a long way. And so <laughs> deans and presidents and department chairs and all these folks, like we're, we're talking like real meaningful compensation in direct correlation to the ways in which a lot of people say like, oh, we value, you know, your input and oh, this is so amazing and oh, this is so helpful and oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. You know, there's a there's an epic freestyle by Black Thought from The Roots. I don't know if you've seen it. No, no. It is seriously one of the most amazing literary feats I've ever seen a human being do. He freestyles for 10 minutes. Oh my God. It's, it's bonkers. Mm-hmm. He's like by far one of my favorite hip-hop artist so like black thought if you're listening like Mm -hmm. it'd be awesome to connect um (laughs) but if not just know i'm a huge fan but in in that you know i mean he he's 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 a brilliant human being in it one of the lines is you know i'm gonna say 300k and even in the ballpark I charge more just for an awkward small talk. I'm going to say 300K ain't even in a ballpark. I charge more just for an awkward small talk. <laughs> and I'm not saying 300K for yeah. an awkward small talk, but, you know, people in positions of power who value our work as black people, who recognize what we're doing and how we are making change in ways that other people who are there cannot do, like, just... Pay us more worth, you know? And just a side note, I love that he raised this point because I've seen a lot of folks online mention that this work is understandably exhausting, especially on top of all the grief and the fear and the anger in the midst of a pandemic and trying to handle workloads on top of being asked to explain how to dismantle 
systemic racism, of which they are the victim. And just a heads up, for the last six months or so, Ologies has been paying honorariums to guests who take on this work and educate us. And I want to thank Patreon for helping make that possible. And if you're out there, no matter who you are, and you're asked to do free labor to educate others based on your lived experience of systemic oppression, ask for honorariums, certainly. Say, I'd love to consider it, depending on my availability, what's the honorarium for this? And then decide after you think about it. Just saying, old Dad Ward and Dr. Jonathan Hall know you're worth it. Ah, thank you so much for, for letting me ask you so many stupid questions. Um <laughs> of all kinds <laughs> i just yeah this has been amazing this has been really awesome so ask the smart people the goofy and sometimes not so goofy questions and thank them for learning you something new um, i hope you are enjoying the crisp autumn mornings and the leaves rustling and the smell of a distant fireplace and the knowledge that a condor would absolutely find you delicious cut banks texture crush we're all gonna die uh, you can follow Dr. Jonathan Hall, who I'm sure you are already a very big fan of, on Twitter and Instagram. His handles are out there, JCH on both, and there will be links to that in the show note alongside a link to his website and more. And we are at Ologies on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Allie Ward with one L on both. So do say hello there. More links for this entire episode will be up at AllieWard.com slash Ologies slash Condorology. If you would like t-shirts, or mugs, or warm hats, or blankets, or any of these things, you can go to ologiesmerch.com. Tons of stuff is up there. Thank you, Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch. They host the podcast, You Are That, which is hilarious. So do find that. Uh, thank you, Erin Talbert. She admins the Ologies Podcast Facebook group. Thank you to Emily White and her team of transcribers who are awesome and are getting transcripts up available to our deaf and hard of hearing ologites. And anyone who would just like a free transcript, those are up at alleyward.com slash ologies dash extras. Thank you all the folks at patreon.com slash ologies for making all these perks possible. Thank you to Gremmy who is walking through the room and who will not be edited out. Nothing's perfect. She's digging around the bed. Thank you to Caleb Patton who bleeps those episodes, making them kid friendly. Those are up at alleyward.com slash ologies dash extras. Thank you to Noelle Dilworth who schedules the ologists and helps me stay on top of my own schedule. Thank you to editors Jarrett Sleeper and of course Stephen Ray Morris who are some of the biggest, baddest birds in the biz. I usually have notes and a list of who I think at the end of this and I don't today and I'm just... Lucy Goosey. Nick Thorburn wrote the music and performed it. And if you listen to the very, very end of the episode, you know I tell you a secret. And this week's secret is I did one of those foot peels where like you put your foot in an acid bath and then like four days later, your skin's supposed to fall off. And it's been day four and so far nothing's happening. And I'm worried that like my feet are so calloused and nasty that it's just no match for it. I might have to use some condor stomach juices next. Anyway, remember to vote because honestly, November 3rd is the scariest thing about October. But either way, we'll be back next week with another Spooktober episode. Oh, it's so good. Okay, bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, litology, nanotechnology, meteorology, Condos.